back on air. Hello and welcome to another episode of Once Upon a Time in the Ashes as we continue to seek out and celebrate the English and Australian cricketers who played in just one Ashes test. Today it's the turn of Joe Angel, our third Western Australian and our second one Ashes test wonder to make the progression from Midland Guildford to WA and finally to the national side. I was about six foot three when I was 15. I think my size helped me. I was playing first grade cricket for Midland Guildford when I was 15. In fact, I remember my first game, Graham. I, I was picked in the first grade against a, a team called Nedlands. And I was LBW bowled Matt Padbury for 23 and had my name in the paper and uh, I thought I owned Midland. Keith Slater there, or Spud, as Joe would come to know him who played his one Ashes test in the 1954-55 series. You can catch up with Keith's story on the very first episode of this podcast. Keith had to venture away from Western Australia to the Sydney Cricket Ground to play his one test for Australia, but 36 years later, it was the whacker for Joe, as Australia sought a home bowler for the fifth and final test of the 1994-95 series. On the last episode, we heard from Peter McIntyre, who played in the previous test at his home ground in Adelaide, as Australia decided to augment Shane Warne's genius with another leg spinner. But the experiment only lasted one test, and Peter had to make way for Joe on the hard and fast track in Perth. And it was pace and bounce that Joe brought to proceedings, rather than the guile and craft of Peter and Spud all those years ago. So let's move on to this episode's main event, and with the Fremantle doctor behind him, it's time to bring Joe Angel into the attack. Joe Angel was a fast bowler for Midland Guildford, Western Australia and the national side. He took 485 first-class wickets at 25, including 419 in the Sheffield Shield. No Western Australian has taken more wickets in the competition. He made his test debut against the West Indies in 1993 and played his one Ashes test at the Wacker in 1995. Joe, welcome to Once Upon a Time in the Ashes. Thanks, Graham. Cheers, mate. <laughs> really good to speak to you. First question I wanted to ask you was actually about Keith Slater because he was the very first guest on this podcast. Do you remember him being around when you first started with Midland Guildford? Yeah, well, Spud, which is his nickname, uh, he's been a great help to me, along with Kevin Gartrell. And, you know, when I first went down to Midland Guildford, and probably those guys, along with Tony Mann, Bruce Hardley, and, and Alex Stewart's the other one, who I've got a lot to uh, thank for, because uh, Alec was the one who sort of noticed me uh, bowling in one of the lower-grade nets and said, I think this bloke looks all right, so we better get him up. So they put me up with uh, the big boys and yeah the rest is history I suppose made my way through the grade on to WA and then Australia yeah absolutely so what age would you have been when you started with Midland Guildford I think I was about 18 or 19 I'm a hills boy which is sort of country area certainly was when I was growing up it's probably sort of semi-metro area now with the way Perth spread so I used to play like Country Week which is to have a carnival every year where the guys from the country regions come down to Perth and they spend a week playing cricket I played to the Hills Association there did that for two years from when I was about 15 or 16 so I was playing in the seniors 
seniors, men's, country week as a 15, 16-year-old. Probably played more as a batsman than a bowler, really. So, yeah, and just enjoyed playing on turf. Sort of thought, oh, well, I'll give this a try. And, yeah, rocked down to Midland Guildford and tapped uh, Alan Bascom, who was the uh, net captain at the time, on the shoulder and said, uh, g'day, I wouldn't mind a game of cricket. Yeah, awesome start. And then you mentioned WA, of course. That was the, the natural next step. You broke into that team in the... 91-92 season, I think, wasn't it? How did that come about? Uh, it was a bit of an unusual. My my debuts have all been a bit unusual, even for Midland Guildford. So my first grade debut for Midland Guildford, actually a good mate of mine failed a fitness test on a Friday night. So I ended up getting called into the first grade there for Midland. was fortunate enough to uh, get a wicket with my first balls. And my first class debut for WA was even more weird. I was working down in the south near Fremantle, which if anyone knows Perth, that's probably 30 minutes south of Perth, and I was living in Midland, so it was a good 50-minute-plus drive, and unfortunately I lost my licence at the time, so it was a couple of buses and that to get to work where I was working at the time, and uh, I got a phone call at about 8.30 in the morning. They eventually tracked me down where I was, and this was the day before mobile phones and everything, of course, and so I got a phone call to say, you're required at the Wacker, uh, the game started at 10.30s. I was in a bit of a panic, understandably, and so I ended up having to get in a cab all the way from Frio back to my uh, house just on the outskirts of Midland and then uh, into the Wacker. So I think it was about $50, $60 later, which was quite a fair bit of money back in the day then. Got to the ground. We'd already tossed and everything like that. So thankfully we won the toss and we were batting and I was able to finally sit down and relax and they come and sort of give you a bit of gear, you know, a few shirts and things like that. Finally got a chance to sort of catch a breath and... Yeah, sort of try and get into it. So, yeah, I ended up bowling once in that game. There was a little bit of rain around being the first game of the year and so forth, but it was an interesting start, that's for sure. And, I mean, the good thing for me, there was a couple of Midland Guildford teammates in the side. So Tim Zura was there, Tom Moody was there. So that sort of helped uh, ease the blow a little bit. And I, I'd sort of been on the peripheral estate squad the year before. I mean, I went and played in England in 1991. That was the first time I went and played up in Durham. So I came back and, like I said, I'd been in and around the, the state squad. I'd played second 11 cricket the year before and we had a couple of practice games and sort of went OK. And I thought, oh, well, OK, I just got to you know, back up and keep trying to get a few wickets and see what happens. And certainly wasn't expecting to get a game First up, it turned out Bruce Reed was sick. He was the one that obviously couldn't play. And then they rang a guy called Peter Capes, who was another wonderful left-arm fast bowler for Western Australia. And uh, he was sick as well, so I wasn't making the first choice. So, yeah, it was a bit of an unusual one. Yeah, but what a season to join, because that culminated in you winning the Sheffield Shield, didn't it? And some absolutely fantastic players you played with that season. Yeah, well, Justin Langer and myself, I remember when we finally won the end, you know, Terry Alderman was sitting down in a chair, he was buggered, and, uh, you know, we, Justin and I, we'd only played seven games each, and just thought, oh, this is easy, winning the Shield, but he first year, no worries, you know, and then you, you realise how hard it is once you've been in the in the game for a little bit, you know, there's people like Dean Jones who played for 15 years who, who never played the Shield final, let alone won one, so certainly very fortunate, yeah, had a, had a good year that year, ended up being the leading wicket-taker for WA, I played seven of the you know, 11 games because obviously when the guys were fit they came back in and then I managed to get another opportunity so Martin McCaig was the other one who was in the team at the start there and that Martin probably uh, thought it was going to be a bit harder to get a get a Gansey and he ended up going to England because um, he had qualified as a as a POM and yeah the rest is history and up playing test cricket for England. Yeah that's crazy isn't it yeah I mean yeah looking at these the figures you took 31 wickets at 25 that season so yeah it's a brilliant first season what are your memories of the final against New South Wales? Because on paper, it looks like a really cracking, you know, close match. 
Oh, it was a it was a great match. I mean, like I said, I didn't really appreciate it. I don't think at the time it ebbed and flowed over the four days. Probably at the end of you know the first two days, it was pretty well back to square. It wasn't much of a, a lead. So basically, the game was there to start again. And, and then in the second innings, we were three for three. Moody was out, Marsh was out, Valletta was out. So three experienced operators were back in the shed and uh, so Justin Langer was batting and Damien Martin came in, the two young punks and Marto made about a run of all 50 which just sort of helped I think give us a little bit of momentum, he got out right on stumps so we were four for about 80 at stumps and Justin was about 20 odd not out, 25 not out just grinding away like he does and then the next day he carried on and made I think it was 149 and scored some really valuable runs with Tim Zura who's Probably the second best wicket keeper batsman that I've seen in my time, behind Gilly, obviously, but Tim was a fantastic player as well. And him and Wayne Andrews, you could almost always rely on those two. When we needed runs, when we were in trouble, those two would invariably get them, and that's what they did. And we, I think we ended up with about a 300 run lead. New South Wales were two for 200. And uh, yeah, I managed to knock over uh, Steve Smith, who's a, a flamboyant left-hander, probably in the in the Dave Warner sort of mould. Knocked him over, knocked Mark Waugh over, and they were sort of four for 200. And then Bruce Reed and, and Terry came on and got a few in the middle there, ripped, ripped the middle out. Tom Moody got the last wicket. So yeah, it was a, a hell of a game. I think we ended up winning by about 40 runs in the end. Yeah, superb. Okay, and then going into the following season, because obviously then you made your test debut that season against the West Indies. But just to take you back before your test debut, you played for WA against the West Indies, didn't you, at the start of the summer? Do you remember that match at all? Yeah, yeah, no, we had, you know, usually Western Australia had the tour matches early on. We had them, yeah, certainly early on in the season and did quite well. I think I got five in one innings. I think Brendan Julian got another five in the other innings. Put my name up there when the selectors were thinking uh, when it got to the fifth test time, you know. Yeah, it's all, all happened in a bit of a rough. Certainly wasn't expecting that, but, I mean, my test debut was probably the most boring debut in some respects because I knew I was going to play the night before where all my other debuts have been right the last minute. It wasn't a great game for Australia unfortunately. We, uh, it was funny because Ellen Border said to me, I mean my first test he said, oh well, what should we do? I said well I always reckon we should bowl first at the Wacker it's sort of when the the best conditions and he won the toss and we decided to bat I mean we were two for about 100 I think we were or two for about 80 odd so we were sitting all right and then Curly Ambrose went through us like a dose of salt so that was when he took that seven for seven for one and uh, yeah I was one of those unfortunately yeah and then we were just going playing catch up from there in the game and yeah too far behind unfortunately yeah who was the quicker bowler, you or Ambrose? Uh, I don't know. It's a hard one to judge. The guy who bowled really quick was Ian Bishop. He bowled seriously quick. He hit me just under the ribs, thankfully, and I got a massive big bruise. I got a leg by and got down the other end, so that was the only bloody good thing. But, yeah, I mean, he was bowling quick because he was bowling downwind with the Freo doctor right up his, uh, you know what, you know, he was quick and he swung them as well. So he was way quicker than what Ambrose and Courtney Walsh and Anderson Cummins was the other bowler they had. So I felt reasonably comfortable. I mean, the Wacken's actually a good place to bat because the bounce is so consistent. If the bowlers are a bit too short, then you can basically play off the back foot. You know, you've really got to get your length right to be effective at the Wacker, and that's where a lot of bowlers would come undone because they see the bounce, but you've actually still got to get the length right. And a word about Brian Lara in that series because, well, to take you back to that game for WA... As you said, you took five wickets in the first innings, including Lara, and then you got Lara in the second innings as well. So, uh, do, you, do you remember either of those two wickets? Yeah, yeah, they weren't they weren't the best ball, but I mean, he he's a guy who obviously gives you an opportunity. He tried to cut one and and got caught at point, sort of hit fairly high on the back, and another one he, he ended up he tried to hit a ball on the up again and got caught at mid off, you know. So it's, it's sort of player he is. I mean. 
probably nine times out of ten, he probably hits it and it goes for four. So whether it was just my height and a bit of bounce that probably did him in the end, it's probably similar to the way Glenn McGrath used to probably trouble him a bit too, you know what I mean? Because we're, well, I'm a little fraction taller than Glenn, but, you know, similar sort of styles and we got a lot of blokes out through bounce. Definitely, yeah. I mean, it was a brilliant series, actually, wasn't it? Because just mentioned uh, Brian Lara there, he scored his maiden test century in that series which turned out to be a huge double century 277 Justin Langer you mentioned earlier he made his debut in the fourth test which West Indies won by one run so that was a thrilling game as well then you had the seven for one as you've mentioned in the test that you played in so yeah it was all happening wasn't it it was it was it was probably sort of right at the end of their sort of dominant era for the West Indies you can sort of see the probably see that the writing was on the wall because there wasn't probably those players coming through behind that they always seemed to have, which has been a bit sad, you know, because it was so good to have the, you know, the Caribbean dynasty that when they finally sort of got it right and the Clive Lloyd and so forth, where they really sort of dominated world cricket for probably 10 or 15 years. And it's uh, it's a real travesty to see sort of what they're going through at the moment. They don't have the, the well-set-up structures and so forth there, and they're competing with the, the NBA and, you know, the Premier League and all this sort of stuff to try and get the best athletes unfortunately I don't think they're getting the best athletes in cricket anymore which is sad yeah definitely so yeah as you say West Indies won that series 2-1 because they won that game at the Wacker what happened after the game did you get on with the West Indies team did you Show them around the local Perth hotspots. Yeah, yeah, I got, I got on okay. I've never had too many dramas with most players, I must admit. I mean, that was back in the days when you did sort of fraternise a bit. I knew a couple of the guys already. I knew um, I knew Jimmy Adams quite well. I played league cricket against him up in England. In Durham there, he was playing up there. So I knew, I knew him quite well. You find the guys like Courtney Walsh and these sort of ones who played a bit of county cricket as well are quite social, you know what I mean? Because West Indian guys, as a general rule, are quite shy. But you find the guys who've perhaps been and played a bit of league cricket or played a bit of county cricket and that sort of stuff are a bit more social. All right. Well, what about from your perspective then? Because, as you say, you're brought in for that the one test um, at your home ground. Then following that series, there was a three-test tour of New Zealand and then obviously the Ashes tour. So were you disappointed you, you didn't make the Ashes tour that year? Yeah, so it's been a bit of a frustration thing, but I, I suppose it was just part and parcel of that era. We had a very strong group of players outside the test team so I would have loved to have had more opportunities you know the only time I got to play two in a row was in Pakistan and that was again through injury to other players and then I uh, I got a bit of shin splints myself so by the time halfway through the second test over there in 94 I was really struggling with my shins so yeah it would have been nice just to have a bit of a run at it you know it was funny because when Australia went to South Africa uh, I think it was at the end of 93 everybody thought that I'd be in the touring party so both everybody had been the touring party bar to selectors unfortunately but like you know Paul Rifle was one of the guys who got selected and you know he's a fantastic player for Australia so you have to say the selectors have done a you know he, he did the job they needed but I would have loved to have had more of an opportunity that's for sure. Yeah embarrassment of riches um, as you say listen just a word on Shane Warne because obviously he played with you in that test against the West Indies and then what we didn't know then was that only a few months away during the Ashes tour was that ball of the century. So what was it like to, to share a dressing room with him and what are your memories of him? Oh, he's just a fantastic character to have in the team. You know, larger than life. I mean, what you saw is what you got. 
He was always making something happen. I mean, just very confident in himself and in his ability. And just a fantastic player to have around. I mean, everybody walked taller when Warney was uh, was on the field and if he had the ball in his hand. Just a fantastic player. And yeah, good fun. Like I said, him and I both like a bit of a punt and all that sort of stuff. So we got on pretty well there. Our, our music tastes are pretty different. And yeah, I don't drink what he used to drink and that sort of stuff. But yeah, we had a bit of fun. Used to be some good battles uh you know, playing shield cricket against him, he'd always try and get a few mind games in that game, which he was very good at. So, yeah, always a lot of fun and entertaining when uh, when Shane's involved, that's for sure. It was just yeah, an absolute tragedy that he died. But unfortunately, he was a very heavy smoker and, and so forth. So I'm probably not as surprised as perhaps some people were. Yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah, but uh, I think it really hit a lot of people hard, even people who didn't play with him or know him personally. Anyway... Yeah, you just mentioned Pakistan, actually. So, as you say, your next test appearances came on that tour. What was it like to tour Pakistan at that time? What are your memories? Yeah, well, I, I enjoyed it. I mean, I'm I'm pretty open to going to different places and experiencing different things. So, you know, I went in there eyes wide open. You know, I think a few of the guys were a little bit unsure and what have you. But, I mean, like I said, the hotels we stayed in were magnificent. The food, I like that sort of food. So... And I'm happy to try things, so that didn't bother me. The people are super passionate. They're very similar to the Indian cricket fans. People just come up and stand next to you. The next minute, there's a flash goes off. You know, they, they don't come and ask to take a photo, but they just come and stand next to you, and someone's there, and they go, take a photo. And I mean, obviously, because of my size, I stand out a bit. Yeah, as always, uh, you try and have a bit of banter when you're sort of down on the boundary and that sort of thing as well. But yeah, very interesting place to tour. There's not a lot to do, unfortunately. I mean, it's, uh, you don't go down the pub and stuff like that. A couple of places we went to a few of the embassies had a little bit of a bar. And, but most times we'd sort of go back to the manager's room, I'd have a couple of beers. And But by the time you do that and you have dinner, because the hours of play, I think, were 10 to 4.30. Quite often didn't shower at the grounds because they, they were a bit scrappy and... Yeah, we'd just go back to the hotel, have a shower, have a couple of beers and you go and have dinner and quite often you were done by 7, 7.30. So you were scratching your head wondering what to do a little bit. So A lot of early nights, yeah. Yeah, it was. So, but it was interesting. So like we, we did, you know, went up through the Khyber Pass one part when we were up in Islamabad, which was really interesting. So I got to have a shot of an AK-47. And it's funny, it's only myself, Glenn McGrath, Justin Langer and Kepler Vessels came up because the South Africans were there for a try one day series and they were the only ones who wanted to have a go and I thought well when are you going to get to shoot one of these you guys you know so yeah interesting place that's for sure yeah that is a great image of the four of you standing there with AK-47s yeah yeah they're bloody noisy I can tell you that's one thing yeah but the noise is probably worse when you're actually standing just a little bit away than actually when you're the one firing what were you what did you have like a target you were shooting now what were you doing we were basically in like a on one side of a big gorge we were basically shooting at the other side of the gorge, like a big rock wall. You know, there's a few mountain goats. They never even flinched. It's like they must be getting shot at all the time <laughs> or something. But they never, it's all controlled by the Kyber rifles. It was almost like going to another world, yeah. So you had to send your passports off and all that sort of stuff. And we had guards about every 400 yards on the road. And it's about a 20, 30k drive from when you leave sort of Islamabad going up through the Kyber Pass. And we got right up near the border. There's a market there, and it's the most amazing market I've ever seen. So basically, you could buy guns, you could buy white goods, and you could buy toiletries. <laughs> so if you wanted a bazooka and a new fridge and some toothpaste, that was the place to go. <laughs> uh, yeah, fascinating. Back on the pitch, I just mentioned that dramatic win for the West Indies against Australia in that other series. But the first test was a dramatic game in this series, wasn't it? Yeah, same, same thing. Yeah. Ebbed and flowed over the over the five days and uh, we had a couple of injuries so before the first it's funny I was rooming with David Boone 
And so Craig McDermott was sort of the senior bowler in the in the team, and we had a few young guys in there, sort of myself, Damien Fleming, and Glenn McGrath, and you had a couple of spinners in Warney and, and Tim May. Now I remember rooming with Booney because Craig had been bowling brilliantly. Like we'd been to Sri Lanka beforehand for a tri series there, and I roomed with Craig when we were in Sri Lanka, and he was bowling really, really well. And it's funny, we got to, got to Pakistan and he got a bit of a sore toe, like a bit of an infection mm. in his toe. And I remember Booney saying it was sort of about two days out from the test match. And so the night before the test match, Booney and I decided we'd have, we're just going to have room service for dinner and Errol Walcott was a physio, so he came over. So I, I bought a bottle of Jack Daniels duty-free. Errol was a bit of a Jack Daniels fan. Booney never drank it before. So we said, all right, we'll, we'll have some of this while we're having dinner, you know. So we, ended up, we had the whole bottle the night before between the three of us, just drinking it with Coke and we end up with mixing it with Buddy Lemonade and whatever in the end. But Booney said, he said, you'll play tomorrow. I said, no, he'll be right. He'll just take it up. He'll play. Sure, you know, I won't play. But sure enough, in the morning, Craig was declared not fit. I played and ended up, uh, which was a bit strange. And then so myself and Glenn took the new ball. We had Warney and Tim May with the two spinners and ended up, Glenn did a hamstring. So he was buggered pretty well about halfway through the first innings. So, But the game was pretty well on an even keel. Again, I think both first innings were pretty close. We batted first. And we set him about 300. So in the end, I opened the bowling with Mark War in the second innings. He took the second year ball. So Junior's, you know, just loves talking about that. And yeah, so basically we had Tim May wake up with a sore neck on the last day and he really struggled. He tried to bowl, but he was really struggling, couldn't really pivot and rotate. So really we sort of had Warney and myself end up doing the bulk of the bowling. I think I bowled, I think I bowled 28, 29 overs or something. So it was a fair old whack for myself, considering it was only really on the back of my third year of first-class cricket. You know, Shane bowled, I don't know how many bowled, he must have bowled 40-odd, I reckon. Yeah, and we got right down to the end, and I had Inzi LB, I thought, given not out, and I had Rashid Lafitte caught behind, given not out, when we took the second nitty ball. And so there's a few things there. I think if they had gone our way, I think we probably would have ended up you know, winning the game. I mean, Morty bowled brilliantly, and I think he took five anyway, and, you know, the last one sort of went through Inzi's legs, and Heels missed a stumping, but the ball nearly ran along the ground, so... He would have done well just to stop it, let alone try and grab it and stump him. So, yeah. yeah. But it was a hell of a game. Hell of a game. Yeah. It was a bit of a case of what might have been for Australia in that tour, because as you said, that was dramatic first game. And then in the second test, you actually um, made them follow on, didn't you? But then, of course, they racked up that massive score. Yeah. Yeah, well, we dropped. And I remember, it's funny, because I'd never looked at the at the LBW I had with Inzi in the first, never actually seen it on telly. And for some reason, I don't know, I was talking to one of my boys. and So I went back on YouTube and I actually found it and it was bloody out. So I would have loved to, you needed the old bloody umpire reviews thing because it would have been, it would have been out. But the thing that I, I noticed, I've never actually seen any footage because it was all done by Pakistan TV, you know. So we didn't get a lot of it or hardly any of it back in Australia as far as I'm aware. I remember they were talking about during the sort of the, the whole test series is we actually dropped about 14 catches, which is very unusual for us. But the grounds are not fantastic for viewing. I can remember the first ground up at, in Islamabad where we played in Peshawar. Like, it's just a big grey concrete steps all around, you know. So it's not a great scene ground, and, and they're all a bit that way. But, yeah, we dropped 14 catches. And unfortunately, in that second test, so like you say, we enforced a follow-on, which was the first time... Pakistan had ever had to follow on in their own country. We had them, I think, one or two down. I think it was just around lunch on day four. And so I had the first over after lunch on day four, and Mark Taylor was captain. He said, I want you to go around the wicket. I thought, okay. So I was bowling to selling Malik. Now, I'd knocked him over both times in the first test. I'd got him out in the first innings of 
the second test. So I've got him three from three, I've got him. So he's on about 20. So Mark wants me to go around the wicket. I couldn't quite work out why. I said, OK, the skipper wants me to do that. So I go around the wicket. First ball, over pissed. He's hit, driven me, hit me for four. Next, second ball, he nicked it straight to Mark Taylor at first slip, right in the bread basket, and he dropped it. And it was sort of 230 runs later was when Damien Fleming got him for his hat-trick. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. But the, the game was safe by then, unfortunately. Yeah. And what I noticed about that game, I don't know how many times this has happened in Test cricket, but every player had a bowl in that second innings, apart from wicketkeeper Ian Healy. Do you remember that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we were just trying to get a wicket in the end. So the wicket was pretty flat. Like I said, we missed those chances and, you know, they were good enough to save the game. And it was it was a pretty frustrating tour all around because over the three tests, we were the only team that had a chance to win all three. But we ended up losing the series 1-0, you know. So it was just one of those strange series. But, yeah, in the end, I think, yeah, Michael Slater got a wicket, which was an absolute travesty. And, <laughs> yeah, I think uh, I think he got Wacko Eunice out. And I said, I remember saying to him, I said, oh, man, you're never going to live this down. You, n- you never let a batsman get a wicket. So. <laughs> no, no, yeah, I know. Slater and Mark Taylor both took a wicket in that yeah, game. Yeah. So, yeah, crazy stuff, yeah. Obviously, you'd missed out on the Ashes Tour of 93, you, you toured Pakistan. Was that a real target for you then, the Ashes against England? And did you think you had a realistic chance of playing in that series? Yeah, I thought I did. I mean, I, I was a pretty consistent wicket-taker over the whole journey, you know. So I think over that probably four- or five-year period, I think, you know, I was either like the leading wicket-taker or second-leading wicket-taker in the country. And I know Andy Bickle and Michael Kaswitz had a little bit of the same issue, that people felt, oh, he only got gets his wickets at the Wacker and they only get them at the Gabba and... It's funny, I remember James Brayshaw was doing some commentary on a Shield game, apparently, because obviously I know James reads me well, and he was doing some commentary with, might have been like Ian Redpath or Bill Laurie or someone like that, whoever it was, said, oh, you know, he's, he's, he gets them all at the whacker, and, and James said, oh, OK, is that right? Well, we better check his record, and it turned out my record was actually better away from the whacker than it was at the whacker, but uh, it's funny how people perceive things. Yeah. Even though the Ashes had been retained uh, by Australia, it wasn't actually a dead rubber, was it? Because England won in Adelaide, so they could have actually squared the series if they had won at the Wacker. So it was a live game, if you get my meaning. How did you go in the match, and what are your memories of the game? The thing that really stands out to me was actually Graham Gooch and Mike Gatting's last Test match. So we sort of made a bit of a guard of honour, and we clapped Graham on when he came out to open the batting with Mike Atherton. Craig McDermott opened the bowling with Merv Hughes and I was going to bowl first chain. First over, Craig was bowling and I think it was about the second or third ball. He dropped one a bit short to Gucci and Gucci tried to pull it but he got it high on the back and it's coming straight to me at mid-on. I've got to go back probably about two or three metres, I reckon. Probably not much more than that. And I start to go back and my spikes got caught in the grass and I went down like a sack of you-know-what and the ball landed just out of my reach. I couldn't. It was going so slow and soft. It was like someone lobbing it to you. And I remember Mike asking, I had to pick the ball up and give it back to Craig, and I'm sort of going, oh, dear, sorry, Bill. And he was going, oh, shit, I'm spewing. But he said, shit, that's going to look funny later on. And Merv was at mid-off. He was pissing himself laughing. And Mike Aston was uh, obviously at the non-strikers, and he said, fair enough, clap me mind, but let him get off the mark. That's bloody ridiculous, you know? Yeah, so it was a, a bit of an interesting run. But, yeah, I got a couple of wickets for the first innings, and, and then Craig just destroyed him in the second innings. I hardly got a bowl. I think I only bowled four or five overs in the second innings and we, we won pretty comprehensively. So, yeah, it was all over and turned out that was the last one I played, unfortunately. Yeah. What about your batting, though, in that game? Because you had a chance to cement yourself in the number three position, didn't you, in the second innings? I got run out in both innings. So I got barbecued in both innings. So Steve Waugh ended up 99 
him and I were batting, and we were going easy. We put on we put on about thirty or forty. I remember uh, they brought Mark Rampercash on. They were trying anything to get us out, get well, get me out anyway. And I remember I had one that's uh, off Rampercash that I cut. I was on the lefty, and I cut it to backward point. Devin Malcolm was fielding backward point, and he sort of misfielded, but it got through him a little bit. And so it was only going to be one run. So we've taken off. I've got to the non-strikers end. And I turn around and Steve Waugh's just coming straight back. So I've got to go. And I, end up, I got run out by half the pitch. I was not even close. So I got barbecued in the first innings. And then the second innings, I went in as night watchman. And so I got through, I think there was about three overs to go. So I got through one over. I'm batting with Mark Taylor. First ball of the second last over, I think it was. He just dropped and run and hit it. Basically, ball's gone straight to mid on, and he's called for one, so I've got to go because he's obviously the recognised batsman. And I can remember it was Gucci. I'm running alongside him. <laughs> I'm not even halfway. Same thing. I wasn't even in the frame. I remember coming off and Errol Orcott. I said, I can't believe I got barbecued in both innings. And Huda just sort of slapped me on the back and said, uh, how much you can do? you got to take one for the team. Well, I, t- I took two for the team. You took two. That was cruel. Yeah, God, that was cruel. Yeah. Even though it was only one, was it enjoyable to play in the Ashes? I, I presume that had always been your dream as a kid. And d- did it mean a lot to you? Was that, was that the biggest match of your life? Well, I think... Probably debut was the biggest match, but being part of the Ashes is one of those things that everyone wants to be a part of. So it was fantastic to be a part of one, and we won it. You know, it meant we retained the Ashes. Yeah, I would have loved to have played some more, but yeah, it wasn't to be. But I played four more tests than what most people have played, so that's the way I look at it. Yeah, and what about the celebrations? I mean, nowadays they seem to stay at the ground for quite a while, don't they? Or maybe go on the pitch or just in the changing rooms. Um, was it similar back then? Yeah, pretty similar. So yeah, that's one of the you know the traditions that have been you know really good about I think Australian teams, and we were pretty similar in Western Australia. So you certainly want to enjoy the uh, the sanctitude of the change rooms and stuff, particularly when you have those really good wins. You know, so like winning the Shield up in Brisbane in '98, '99 was very similar. So you know you really enjoy that sort of sanctitude of the the change rooms and and the environment to really soak it in with the the guys who you've been battling with. Yeah, definitely. Post that Ashes series, I mean, you continue to take a bucket load of wickets for, for WA. You just mentioned it, uh, 98-99. Was that the highlight of your time playing for WA? Or? That's up there in terms of the most memorable, just because they'd sort of done a bit of a job on us sort of two years previous when they beat us at the Wacker. So to be able to go up there and repay the favour, and it was a bit of a bit of a battle to make the final. So that was two in a row for us we went back to back because we won the previous year against Tassie pretty comfortably but yeah so the backstory is we had to the last game we were playing Victoria down in Melbourne we had to if we drew we were going to finish second so we knew we'd be going to Queensland so on the last day at lunch we were five for not too many so the Vicks were pretty happy you can imagine at lunchtime they were chirping and carrying on like real good sorts and Simon Cadditch was batting with uh, another young fellow called Rob Baker. And they, they batted right until about halfway through the last session. And we managed to draw the game. And, and we almost felt like it was destiny. Once we got through that game with a draw, we felt like we really had nothing to lose. And Queensland won the toss and batted first. And we managed to bowl them out. I think about 300. Again, seems to be that score, about 300. Yeah, and then we batted. Simon Cadditch made a fantastic 100. I think Damien Martin got about 80-odd. And the score was about 7 for... I think we were about pretty well level with the pegging with them. So if we had got bowled out cheaply, the game would have been sort of back on level pegging. And um, I came out to bat with Brendan, who obviously is Midland Guildford teammate as well, and, and he just proceeded to slay him. He scored about, I think it was about 80 or 90 off about 75 balls, and uh, we put on nearly 100. 
you know, I just nicked a noodle a few at the other end and I just had the best seat in the house to watch him belting the bejesus out of him. And he did that, you know, that was two shield finals in a row he did that. He did the same against Tassie where he just, we dominated that game, but he took it right out of their reach. And that sort of partnership, you know, we went from, like I said, the game being pretty well level to I think we had about 100, might have been 130, 140 run lead, which was really handy. And, yeah, we came out to bowl and Damian Martin managed to knock over Matthew Hayden right on stumps, which gave us some real impetus. And we ended up winning by an innings. You know, bowled him out for about 100 in the second innings. So, yeah, certainly remember the celebrations well there, picking up the manager and putting him in the shower and that sort of thing. So, yeah, but uh, that was the old Gabba change rooms that were pretty average before they did the revamp to the Olympics and so forth. So, Who was the manager then? A guy called Ronnie Bow, who played a lot of first-class cricket for Western Australia and he was a selector as well, lovely, lovely fellow Bowie. And, yeah, he was he built like a one-iron, so I could pick him up pretty easy and, yeah, I just picked him up and put him in the shower and thought he could have a shower with all his clothes on, you know. But he was good. He, he was a good sport. He had a laugh about it. So, yeah, we still talk about it today, so which is good. Oh, good, yeah. Now, from your own personal point of view, you finished with an incredible, as I said at the start, 419 Sheffield Shield wickets. No one has taken off WA, and it's only Andy Bickle, Michael Kasprovitz, and Clary Grimmett have taken more in Shield history. So how did you achieve such longevity and success, you know, especially as an out-and-out quick? It wasn't as if you were a spin bowler. What did you put that down to? Yeah, I think it's just, I'm not sure... Why? I think the fact that I probably didn't play a lot of underage cricket, I think, helped me. So I never played any state under 17, state under 19s, all this sort of stuff. And it's one of the things that I uh, I talk to young players about. I do a bit of stuff with the whacker and that now, trying to help young guys make the next step and what have you. And I think, you know, some of them get a bit too caught up in thinking that you need to play state under 17, state under-19s, all this sort of stuff. You know, it's funny because even like with the second 11 cricket I played, I reckon that's probably the when you actually really start to see whether people are going to perhaps be the next, be first-class cricketers because you see a lot of guys who play underage cricket that don't go on with it for whatever reason, whether there's sometimes the, the young players, I think they might be big fish in a small sea and when they get to the open age stuff, that's where you really test yourself. So I think I've been pretty durable in terms of my body. You know, I had a few injuries here and there, but that's, that's to be expected over the day. But yeah, being durable and just being consistent. Pretty simple game. I know Ben McGraw always says, yep, back of a length, top of a stump, back of a length, top of a stump. Well, that was pretty much my mantra. So I say that to guys all the time. I sort of talk about it from a batting perspective. I say, well, if you're batting and you're not scoring, what do you do? And I say, well, you try and do something. I say, well, batsmen are exactly the same. Just some blokes might take 100 balls, other blokes might take 10 balls. So that's the battle, trying to win that battle. And you can count on one hand the amount of sort of what you call glory balls you bowl in a career. But, you know, most of the times it's just through wearing people down and building pressure. And if you've got two years doing that, it makes the job pretty easy. Yeah. Well, 400-plus wickets, you certainly mastered it. So, yeah, that was superb. What a record. You mentioned Durham at the start of the interview, and then you had some time playing for Gloucestershire, didn't you, in uh, yep. 2002, yep. I think it was. So, yeah, what are your memories of playing in England? Oh, I loved it. So, yeah, I've just had a bit of David Moody, who's um, obviously at Midland Guildford, and I've tried to help him out a little bit this year. He's come back to Midland after being away at university for a couple of years, and he's over playing at the moment. I said, said to him, I said to him, I was a bit envious. I loved my time over there, and I've got some great friends I made up in Durham and at Burnley when I played, and Chorley and Lee as well. So played in Lancashire League, played in the uh, Northern League, and played in the Liverpool Cup as well as uh, those games for Gloucestershire. So, yeah, just thoroughly enjoyed my time. 
time sort of, you know, went over there as a single bloke, went over there when we got married and went over there when I had uh, had two of my kids, which was a great experience. Loved the whole thing about English cricket. Yeah, good fun, great fun. So when did you know that it was time to, to hang up the boots, as it were? When was that and was it a hard decision? Not really in the end because the body was just hurting too much. So the wear and tear, like my knees were pretty well cooked by the end. And I can remember we were playing New South Wales at the Wacker, so it was a nice little synergy. Both the Wars were playing and I think I got two of the last three wickets, I think it was, I was bowling. And Marcus North happened to be bowling at the other end. I think I got the eighth wicket, I got the ninth wicket. And I remember a good mate of mine was down the boundary because, uh, you know, we'd sort of announced this was going to be my last game already before the start of the game. And he said, oh, how are you going? I said, oh, I'm bloody hurting. He said, oh, yeah, I hope he gets this wicket soon, you know. And then, thankfully, that over north, he got the last wicket and he, he came down. He was, oh, oh, I'm sorry, big fellow. I wanted you to get the wicket. I said, mate, I'm not sorry. So, you know, the body was, <laughs> was well and truly done. And sadly, we are also well and truly done for another episode. Big thanks to Joe for taking us through his cricketing journey. An incredibly consistent performer for WA with those 419 shield wickets, 35 more than his fellow Western Australian Terry Alderman, who took 41 wickets in the 1989 Ashes series. For the record, Australia won the fifth test of that 94-95 series by 329 runs as England crumbled to 123 all-out in the second innings. Joe took 3 for 65 with the ball in the first innings and was run out barbecued, as Joe puts it, in both innings. That gave Australia a 3-1 series win, Ashes retained. And now we need to fast forward to 1997 in England to find our next three One Ashes Test Wonders, Mike Smith and Peter Martin of England and Sean Young of Australia. But that's for another time. Until then, I've been Graham Barrett and this has been Once Upon a Time in the Ashes. (laughs) 